All right, well, good evening, everybody. So if you can, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 33, the whole chapter. And because it's 33 verses, I'm not going to ask you to stand and thereby crush your knees. Um, Instead, here's what I could say. We're going to roll right into the prayer, but what I could tell you is in the course of the sermon, all 33 verses will be read and explained. Now, the title of the sermon is Hosting God and Loving the World, okay? Hosting God and Loving the World. And so, Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 33, Um, I'm going to go to the Lord in prayer, then we'll jump right into it. God, we just thank you so much that uh, you give us your word, that you give us Genesis 18. I pray, Lord, that as we dive into it, you would give us um, just ears to hear and and eyes to see and hearts to receive what's in your word, God, that you'd remove me as much as possible so I don't mess it up, Lord, that um, really you would just shape us and transform us and get us to see exactly what it is that you want us to see um, in in your word, God, that uh, we would truly... Um, just be changed and that uh, we would be edified, that those who don't know you would hear the gospel and be saved. Um, Lord, just be with me. Uh, give my, my throat and my voice a little extra strength. Um, and uh, Lord, we just pray that you'll be with us and that you would be glorified. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in the Christian faith, we throw around the word covenant a lot. Now, our surrounding world doesn't really know what a covenant is because they don't think in terms of covenants, uh, but we do, right? We understand this because we understand when we read our Bibles that it's through covenants that God relates to humans, okay? A covenant's kind of like a contract, but it's way more than a contract. It's a pledge or a promise that God will be our God, and in return, we will be his obedient people. In a nutshell, it's what a covenant with God is all about, And so the question is, what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us to be his obedient people? Well, we could look at a text like ours. We could look at Abraham in our text, and we could at least see part of what it means to be in covenant with God. Looking at the example of Abraham, we see that being in covenant with God means being God's host, we're going to see that, and being the world's intercessor. In fact, that is the point of the text. That is the the, the point of the text. Um, In fact, I don't have my control up, so if you guys could run the slides for me, that'd be great. But the the, the point of the text is is God's people host God, and we intercede for the world. Okay, we host God, and we intercede for the world. Now, we're going to see that here, because as we look at the text, we're going to see Abraham as host, and we're going to see Abraham as intercessor. And and, and I believe that in principle, we will be able to apply some of that to us. So as we move into it, as we continue our journey through Genesis, let me remind us of where we are at. Just two weeks ago, we went through Genesis 17, which was a huge chapter in terms of significance. See, back in chapter 12, God chose this man, Abraham, and he made some big promises to him. Then in chapter 17, God expanded those promises and made them very clear. God is in a covenant with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. And God says it's an eternal covenant. It lasts forever. And it's symbolized by circumcision. Okay? It's visibly symbolized by circumcision. And ultimately, he's saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. Okay? 
And that is what Abraham needed to hear because he was starting to get doubtful of God's promises by that point. And so God not only reassures him, but then God tells him, I'm going to start fulfilling this thing right away. By this time next year, you will have a child through Sarah, okay, through your wife, Sarah. Well, our text tonight picks right up on that. It picks up on that. In fact, the first half of the text seems like a repeat of what we saw in chapter 17, okay? You might be like, wait, this is what chapter 17 said. But look, it's not a mere repeat, okay? Moses does not waste words. We're actually in chapter 18, we're going to start seeing how God means to use Abraham and his descendants to be a blessing to the nations, right? We're going to start to see how that works. And it goes back to what I said earlier. See, as God's people, we host God. And as God's people, we intercede for the lost. And we're going to see Abraham host God and intercede for the lost, which is one way that he begins to bless the nations. So let's take a look at the first part of the text, okay? See, we're seeing that that we host God and we intercede for the world. Let's look at the first part, which is hosting God. It's the first 16 verses. We're going to see that Abraham here is quite the host. So let's look at verse 1. Moses writes this. He says, The Lord appeared to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of of his tent during the heat of the day. Now, Moses has a style of writing where, kind of like the army, he gives you the bluff, the bottom line up front. Okay, he tells you what happened, just throws it out there in one sentence, and then he'll unpack it a little more after that. And so, what's the bottom line? Abraham is sitting by the oaks of Mamre in the heat of the day, chilling in the entrance of his tent, and God comes and visits him, right? That's the bottom line up front here, okay? Now, as he does this, okay, as, as he, he states things this way in verse 1, it is meant to make you stop for a second and say, wait a second, what I just read seems familiar to something else, but it also seems different than that thing it's familiar to. And so what am I talking about? Well, simply put, you have these large trees, you have a man that's in covenant with God, okay, sounds like the Garden of Eden before the curse, and in fact, in Genesis 3, verse 8, it tells us that God's custom was to show up in the cool of the day and walk in the garden. And yet here, in these trees, it tells us God shows up in the heat of the day, not the cool of the day, the heat of the day. Okay, this is meant to make you stop and think, wait, this is like it, but it's different. Cool of the day versus the heat of the day. It's meant to remind you of the difference of the world before and after the fall. Before the fall, God could be among the trees with his human covenant partner in the cool of the day, meaning that the world was perfectly temperate. There was no blistering heat of the day. It was a perfect environment, but now it's different. After the fall, God will still be among His trees are among the trees with his human covenant partner, which is Abraham now. But now it's not the perfect Garden of Eden anymore. Now the world is cursed, which one indication of that is the heat of the day. The environment is hostile rather than perfect. But it doesn't matter, though, at the end of the day, right? In Adam, the world is cursed. Remember the first 11 chapters throws the word cursed out there five times. Then as soon as God calls Abraham, he says, I will bless you five times. In Abraham, he's going to start doing what he's going to do to ultimately reverse the curse, which will come in its fullness when, when Jesus returns, okay? But until that day comes, our walk with God is going to be in a world that now has the heat of the day instead of the cool of the day, right? It's going to be a little more difficult, but that's okay. Abraham's still able to... to, to uh, 
you know, host God in an imperfect world. So Moses worded verse 1 in such a way to make us think about this. Now, Moses' style doesn't just begin with the quick summary of what happens. Once he gives you that summary, he then seamlessly puts you in the eyes of Abraham. The way he writes this, now you're like, you're Abraham, and you're seeing it through his eyes. You're there, and you're, you're learning these things in real time and seeing these things in real time as Abraham does. And that's going to explain some of the things the text tells us. It's going to say things that you know aren't necessarily true of God. He doesn't have to go down and see anything, right? God knows everything, but he's going to say things in a way. Things are going to be uh, described in a way that makes sense from a human perspective that's seeing this all unfold, okay? Now, in verse 1, Moses told us right away that God is the one that visits Abraham. That way, in verse 2, as you're experiencing this event in the order that Abraham is, you're going to know from the get-go who Abraham is hosting. Okay? That's why Moses tells you that. It helps you understand why Abraham responds the way he does. So with that, let's look at verse 2. It says, He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent of me. Uh, it says, When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them and bowed to the ground. Okay, So this puts us in Abraham's reference point. He looks up, he sees three men, and then he runs to them. And loved ones, I'm just going to tell you, that's not normal. In the ancient Near East, it was undignified for an elderly man to run. He'd have to pull up his, his girt, his loins, which means he'd pull up his man's skirt, tie it high, have to show those old man legs. And say, No, that was, that was very undignified. And Abraham's almost 99 years old. Or no, he is 99 years old. So I'm sorry, this guy won't run, but he sees these three and he gets up and he runs to them. And then he bows to them, it says. Now, yes, this was a hospitality culture, but you only bow to your social superiors. You don't bow to everyone, and Abraham's already got a great name in the land. This here is a posture of worship. Now, in verses 3 through 5, Abraham continues. It says, My Lord, if I have found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I will bring a bit of bread... That's kind of funny. You don't, you'll see. I'll bring a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why you've passed your servant's way. Later, you could continue on. Now, one thing that's interesting is in Hebrew, he says, my lords. It's actually plural. My lords, let me do all this stuff for you. It's plural, right? He's referring to all three as Lord. Now, he might just be calling them all master, or he might be calling all three the Lord, right? Keep that in mind. Okay, and also keep in mind, he sprinted from his location and he bowed to them. Okay, now, of course, they're receptive to Abraham's actions because verse 5 ends by this way. It says, yes, they replied, do as you have said. And what we see next from Abraham's perspective again shows us who Abraham thinks he's dealing with. Look at verses 6 through 8. It says, so Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, quick, Need three measures of fine flour and make bread. Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf. He gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. Then Abraham took curds and milk as well as the calf that he had prepared and set them before the men. He served them as they ate under the tree. Okay, so he runs to his elderly wife and he says, start kneading some flour. 
Now, you can read past this really quickly and miss some of the details. Abraham asks her to need three measures of the best kind of flour. Now, why three measures and what is a measure? Okay, well, we know the three because there's three of them, but what's a measure? This is the Hebrew word seah, and a seah is two gallons of grain. That means six gallons of grain for these three guys. That's a lot. I did the math. I looked up how much that would weigh. That is 36 pounds of grain. And I could promise you, once you add water, leaven, and you bake it, we're talking about a lot more than 36 pounds of bread. Think of it this way. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 18, Abigail was able to sufficiently feed David and his entire band of outlaws, which was a lot of people, she was able to do that with only five seahs of parched grain. So we have three seahs here, not to feed an army, but just these three. That's why I think it's funny when Abraham's, let me make you a bit of bread. This isn't a bit of bread. This is a lot of bread. It's way more bread than three men could ever eat, way more. Then on top of that, he's not stopping with the bread. He tells the servant to take the choice calf, which just means the fattened calf, okay? This is the most premier meat that Abraham has. And by the way, typical hospitality rules of the time at most would say you only have to offer a small goat, okay? Not the fattened calf. That is the most valuable piece of meat you have, right? And he tells his servant, take the fattened calf and do this quickly. He makes it urgent. Listen, a fattened calf could feed a whole village. It would be hundreds of pounds of meat. So hundreds of pounds of meat for these three guys who knows how many pounds of bread. And then in addition to that, Abraham himself is preparing milk and curds. Verse eight then ends by saying he served them as they ate under the tree. So Abraham has all this food made, enough to feed a whole company of people, and yet he eats none of it. He's waiting on them as a waiter, okay? It says he served them as they ate under the tree. Now, I want you to think about that. This man, Abraham, was a man blessed by the high priest of God, Melchizedek. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Abraham was honored by all those kings that he rescued. And yet Abraham's bowing before these three, and he even waited on them like a servant. Don't forget that, because that's an important point of the application that I'm going to come back to. Now, of course... Everything I've just read makes no sense without verse 1. That's why he gives us verse 1. That's why Moses says, hey, you need to make sense of this. God is the one who showed up. God has come to Abraham. And the fact that Abraham is acting this way means he was able to perceive pretty quickly that this was God the moment he saw the three of them. Okay, that's my point. He recognizes a superior is in his presence and not just any superior. He recognizes it's Yahweh. And the interesting thing is, and this trips some people out, but it says God it says God ate. Okay? He ate here. Now you might be thinking, but wait, God is spirit. He has no stomach. How could God eat? Well, for sure God doesn't need to eat, but he's God. He could take a physical form and he could consume food. How do I know? He's doing it right here. 
And you all know who had a hard time with this was the early church, some folks in the early church, because they adopted Greek philosophy. And Greek philosophy said God can never take on a physical form and eat physical food. But what I'm telling you is just agree with the Bible. It tells us God is spirit, but it tells us God showed up in a physical form and ate food. A lot of it, apparently, right? And so God could appear physically and he could eat. It's that simple, okay? And look, this is, this is important, what we're seeing here, because Adam was supposed to have a close and intimate fellowship with God. That's what Adam was supposed to have before he fell. And few things display fellowship and closeness like a shared meal. That is why the early church had what were called agape feasts or love feasts. That's why for Passover, you, the goal is to, to stuff as many Israelites in your house as you could fit to share this meal together. It's closeness. It's fellowship. Adam and Eve could have eaten with God under perfect trees for all eternity in the cool of the day had they not rebelled. This is showing us here a glimpse of what humanity could have had. Here's Abraham, God's covenant partner at this point, and God is supping with him under a tree. It's no accident that the prophets later will paint the picture of the final reward being a giant banquet where we get to eat the choicest food with God. It's no accident that the New Testament takes this idea and speaks of the great marriage feast of the Lamb, right? That's all there. It starts here, and it's pressing forward to all that, okay? In Abraham, we get this picture that what Adam lost, God will restore it. And this is a small microcosm of what that looks like. It's, in fact, a perfect picture of it. Now, I do suppose there's at least one rabbit trail or side quest that, uh, that we need to hit tonight, and that is the identity of the three. See, we know from verse 1 that Yahweh visited Abraham, but are all three Yahweh, or is only one of them Yahweh? Okay, now I'm going to try not to spend too much time on this, but there are three options. Option one is that none of them are God. None of them are Yahweh, but all three are angels, okay? Even though it calls them Yahweh, some scholars would say that, listen, there's some angels that are just so close to God that they reflect his glory. And when they bring his message, it makes sense to say Yahweh spoke it, even though it's coming through the mouth of a messenger. For example, in Daniel chapter 10, you have this magnificent angel that is described. And then you get to the book of Revelation, and Jesus is described in almost the same way. Well, you know that Jesus is not an angelic being. Jesus is God. But when you read Daniel 10, that being is not God. It's an angelic being. And so the idea there is that there's some angels that are so close to God's inner circle that they reflect his glory so much that they kind of look like him. Okay? And so then the basic premise is these three angels are from Yahweh's inner circle of angels. They reflect his divinity without actually being him. Now, I'm going to tell you, I find that unpersuasive. I don't believe that position. Those who hold this view hold this view because they don't believe in theophanies. Now, theophany is just a fancy word of God appearing in a physical form in the Old Testament. They don't believe God did that, could do that, or would do that. And so, of course, they're going to say it had to be angels. But honestly, there's just too many examples in the Old Testament where I don't see any other possibility of it being any other possibility than God appearing in a physical form. And this is one of those. It's very easy to reject this view because it tells us Yahweh is the one who visited Abraham. Not just that he spoke, but that he visited him. So we should take it for what it says. 
And, and as I said, there's just too many times in the Old Testament where the identification between the apparition and God are so explicitly stated. Times where the angel of the Lord, the Malach Yahweh, meaning the messenger of God, when God's his own messenger, would disappear and they'd be like, oh my gosh, we're going to die. We saw God. You know, what else are we supposed to take those passages as saying? Okay. And there's another thing. Abraham bowed before these three. In the book of Revelation, when John bows before angels, he gets rebuked. Abraham's not getting rebuked here, so he's not bowing before mere angels. Okay. At least one of these uh, beings is God. So when we rule that out, there's only two options left for us about these three. Option one is that one of the three is the Lord. One of the three is God. And then the other two are just like sidekick angels, in a sense. And this is the most popular view. The vast majority of commentators that I looked at seem to hold this position. Okay, that's one option. The second option is that all three are God. All three men are Yahweh here, and it's painting the picture of the Trinity. Okay, that's the other option. The word Yahweh in the text in Hebrew is applied to all three of them, not just one of them, okay? But what throws it off sometimes is that the language will freely move from the plural back to the singular and then back to the plural where one of them speaks and that one is Yahweh, but then again, there's times where all of them speak and it still says Yahweh is the one speaking. And so, and there's no attempt on Moses's part to show any difference between the three, okay? So a minority of scholars because of that would argue that this is just a reflection of the Old Testament's tension where the Old Testament keeps presenting God as one but many. You know, there's one God, but there's a plurality to him. And we see this in the Old Testament, like God's name being, or the word God being Elohim in Hebrew is plural, but there's only one God and everything he does is, is singular, right? It's all singular verbs that get, get attached to this plural noun. And so we know as Christians, this all points to the Trinity, but what folks will usually say is the Old Testament shows us the one and the many, but it doesn't tell us how many, okay? The New Testament's what finally tells us there's three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, if those minority of scholars are correct, then no, it does tell us how many in the Old Testament. Right here, there were three that showed up. So you got the one God, but the one God is three. Even the church father, Augustine, believed that all three were God. Now, his reasons weren't based on the text. It was more theological. He was battling an ancient heresy called subordinationism where people were saying Jesus and the Holy, Holy Spirit are subordinate to the Father. And so he tried to use this example to say, no, look, all three are the same. Now, honestly, I think Augustine's argument was pretty weak. <laughs> and, uh, and even if this text has God with two angels, that doesn't support a subordinationist position. So what Augustine was doing was not necessary, okay? Now, here's the thing. In chapter 19, the very first verse, it identifies the two of them that go down to Sodom. It calls them angels, but it never calls the one that's left speaking with Abraham as an angel. So some people will be like, see, that's why only one of them's God and then the other two are angels. But then we also know the Old Testament at other places, God will call himself the angel of the Lord. So again, this could go up in the air. Here's my point. None of the arguments are decisive. That is why people argue about this. So if you want to know my position, I've not seen enough to convince me of either position. Personally, I would rather this be an appearance of the Trinity for obvious reasons. And so that's what I'm going with. But I am suspicious of overstatements. 
I'm suspicious of overstatements where some people say, no, the Hebrew demands it. Listen, the majority of Hebrew scholars who could read Hebrew while they're sleeping don't think it demands it, okay? Um, so here's what I'll say. Today, I think all three are Yahweh and we're looking at the Trinity. Tomorrow, if an opposing scholar makes me a really good breakfast, I might change, I might change my mind, okay? But here's what's important with this. Here's what's important. Regardless of your position, Yahweh is there. Either all three or one of them. But Yahweh's there, and that is in principle who Abraham is hosting and who he's going to be holding the conversation with, okay? And so let's continue the text. In verse 9, the dialogue starts, and it's very abrupt. They eat, they're chilling, and then the first thing God says, where's your wife, Sarah? <laughs> It'd be like, you know, not, hey, how you doing? Thanks for the meal. Where's your wife, Sarah? And, and here's the thing, and Abraham's going to say, oh, in the tent, right? It says, in the t- there in the tent, he answered. But my point is, he has to know this is the Lord for sure, because there's only one person that knows her name is Sarah. Everybody else would think it's Sarai. God just changed her name to Sarah. And then the, these people show up, and where's your wife, Sarah? Okay? Now, I can imagine being, uh, being Abraham here. You know, you're serving these three. You believe at least one of them is God taking on a, a physical form. And then when he finally speaks, he's like, where's your wife? Now, of course, God knows, right? This is, God's going somewhere with this. And think of what we've seen with God in Genesis so far. He asks questions when he's talking to people because it's for our sake, right? When it came to Adam, he's like, where are you? He knew where Adam was. Who told you you were naked? He knew what happened. And then when it came to Cain, where's your brother? He knew Cain knew where his brother was. And then what have you done? He knew what Cain done, right? But God will ask the question because he's going somewhere with this. And so where's your wife, Sarah? Okay, this is going to be about her, okay? He's actually going to be talking to her through Abraham, but really talking to her the whole time. It's very interesting. She's in the tent. That's what Abraham answers. And what's interesting is God doesn't say, go and get her. Instead, he keeps talking to Abraham about her. Why? Well, verse 10 is going to tell us she's been dropping some eaves, okay? She's eavesdropping, and God knows it. And so look at verse 10. It says, the Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance or listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Now, before we get to her eavesdropping and snooping in on a private conversation, just know that this verse makes it clear that this happened very soon after God appeared to Abraham in that dream in chapter 17, right? In chapter 17, verse 17, God said the same thing, at this time next year, you will have a kid. So this can only be days later. My assumption is the circumcision pain just healed (laughs) so that Abraham could cook for him, okay? Um, And and so we're we're talking just days away so that God could still say, hey, at this time next year, you're going to have a kid through Sarah. And I'm pretty sure that after God told Abraham the first time, he told her. I'm pretty sure she didn't believe it based on what we're going to see her say here, okay? Um, But then here she is. She sees him acting as if God is at their house, bowing to them, cooking this feast. So she sees them acting like God's at the house. And of course, she's going to eavesdrop. My wife eavesdrops anytime she thinks I'm talking about something interesting. Imagine if God was at your front door, okay? Imagine if he was at your front door. Of course, she'd be like, all right, what's Abraham saying about me? Well, what's going on out here? You know, so she's eavesdropping. And of course, God, he's already told Abraham, 
You know, look, she's going to bear you a, a, a son at this time next year. And, and so you would think, well, if God already said this, and he just said this a short while ago, why is he going to show up, have me put on this massive feast for him just to tell me what he already told me? Well, again, God is here to talk about more than just that, as the second half of the chapter will show. But this part of the conversation, it's not for him. It's for her. It's for Sarah, okay? So in verse 11, Moses reminds us, he's, he kind of takes a little editorial detour, okay? He, you know, we're, we're leaving the scene. We're not in Abraham's eyes anymore. And he's, he's bringing us back to the third person. And he says in verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Maybe Moses is thinking somebody just randomly opened up to Genesis and started here and they didn't read all the rest before this. So he's reminding you, okay? That listen, these two are old. He's 99, she's 90. In fact, the, the Hebrew could be translated in modern English as Sarah passed the age of menopause. And 90, she passed the age of menopause for quite some time. It's humanly impossible for her to get pregnant. But it's not a human that's promising this, now is it? So with that reminder that they're old, verse 12 then makes sense, okay? You know, the, otherwise the reader, if they just jumped in here, they wouldn't get verse 12, but... We're reminded they're old. And so verse 12 says this. It says, so she laughed to herself. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? Well, notice this, okay? She heard the promise of God and she mocks it with a laugh, okay? But this is a laugh to herself. It's not public. It's quiet. It was under her breath. No one could hear this. And pretty much what she's saying is, really, after I'm worn out and Abe is over the hill, that's when this is going to happen? I don't think so. And by the way, the words worn out is the word about sandals wearing out from use. She's pretty much saying, my body is a broken sandal. It's worn out. And then she asks, will I have delight? Which in Hebrew, I'm not going to go too far into it, but it's a statement about marital pleasure. They are past the age for that kind of physical intimacy. They have to have more of just a relational intimacy that doesn't involve that. Their stuff, it just, anyway. So she knows that if she's going to get pregnant by Abraham, God's going to have to rejuvenate all those aspects. He's going to have to make them like they're, like they're young again. And, and I'll leave it at that, okay? She sees this as impossible, and she states it under her breath. Well, God calls her out. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, but the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you. And in about a year, she will have a son. Now, this catches my attention for two reasons. First, when God told Abraham the same thing in chapter 17, he had a stronger reaction. His was not private, he fell on his face laughing, like, really, we're going to have a kid? No, no, use Ishmael. And then God's like, no, that's not going to happen. It's going to be through Sarah. And yet he didn't bite Abraham's head off. He didn't call him out. Even though Abraham's was loud and just use Ishmael, God's like, nope, not going to do that. But with Sarah, she does it quietly. She does it under her breath. And then God is going to call it out. He quotes the meaning of her words. He corrects her bad thought. So she didn't literally say, can I have a baby when I'm old? But that's what she meant. And that's what God is, is pulling out of that. He then rebukes her question with the question of his own. Is anything impossible for me? Is anything impossible for Yahweh? And obviously we, we think and we say, well, no. I mean, he spoke the universe into existence. He made the first two people out of dust. 
taking an elderly woman that's alive and rejuvenating her hardware so that she could get pregnant, that's really nothing for God. That's easier to do than what he's already done, right? I mean, the flood and stuff like that would be harder than this, okay? And so, of course, God can do this. And, And I think we all need to remember that sometimes. I think there's times where we simply don't believe what God says in his word. Like, in our minds, we're like, we know he can, but like, will he really? And would he for me? And, and, and stuff like that. But we got to remember what God promises, he will do. Okay? For example, he promises he will never leave us and forsake us. Will he really never leave us and forsake us? I don't know. I feel forsaken at times. Well, stop that thought and rebuke yourself with God's own words. Is anything impossible for God? No. And so did he not promise that he would never leave us or forsake us? No matter how bad you're feeling, no matter what's going on, he has not left or forsaken you. He can't. He can't deny himself. If you feel like he has, your feelings are lying, not God. Okay? And so the point is we need to believe what he promises. Now, the second thing that stands out to me here is he asks Abraham why his wife laughed. Why, how would Abraham know? He, he likely had no idea that she said this to herself. This was quiet. This was under her breath. So he's asking Abraham something he possibly can't know. Why would he do that? Well, that's the answer to the question right there. She's snooping, okay? God knows she's there. He's not at first saying, Sarah, come out, you know, from there. Instead, hey, Abraham, why'd your wife laugh? You know, because he's really asking her through Abraham. And Abraham's like, well, what are you talking about? This is really what's happening here. But he's asking this question to Abraham mainly for Sarah. He's talking indirectly to her. It's his way of saying, look, I know you're eavesdropping. And I know, now you know that I know your every thought because I just called you out. You can't hide your thoughts from God. And this totally catches her off guard. I mean, Abraham doesn't even get a chance to try to make something up. You know, she's actually going to come out talking because she knows that God's really talking to her. See, at, at first she thinks no one sees her. She certainly thinks her thoughts are private. Now she's been jolted, right? So what does she do? Now that she knows God knows what she said to herself, does she do what's right? Nope. She does what Adam did. She lies by deflecting. She does what Cain did, lies. She does what her husband Abraham did in Egypt, lies. You know, Moses has no problem showing us that God chose to covenant with people who lie, especially when they're afraid. And you know what? I'm so thankful for that, that God's grace is sufficient, that he covenants with liars, and then he still rewards them after their lies. Not because they lied, but because his grace is sufficient. So verse 15 records her response. She knows he's talking to her not Abraham. And so she answers. It says, Sarah denied it. I didn't laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, no, you did laugh. And I love this. Not her lie, but God's response. Okay. So again, why did Sarah say it's impossible? Is anything impossible for me? She then says, no, I didn't say that. And I just picture God not even looking at her, drinking the milk. No, you said it. You know, and he just leaves it at that. Just leaves at that. You said it. I know you said it. You know you said it. Stop it. And then verse 16, which comes after this, he and the three, he and the two, they just get up and walk away. He doesn't say anything else after this. Nope, you said it. And then he leaves. He just bounces. It's like, lady, I can hear your thoughts. We've already established that. You're still going to lie. Okay? By God saying, no, you laughed, and then getting up and walking away, I think that, and I would hope, that would leave a big impact on her. He didn't yell. He didn't get firm. 
He simply told her, no, you said it. And then he walked off. He departed. If that was me and I were her, I would have felt so guilty. Like I lied right to God when I had the chance to come clean and I didn't. He then stated as a fact what I did and then he just left. I don't know if I'm ever going to get another chance to talk to God in this kind of way again. And I lied and now he's gone. So just interesting food for thought. Let's not be dumb, right? Um, Because she was being foolish there. And, And then think about this though. Even though he gets up and walks away, you might think he's walking away saying, hey, I'm I'm not going to bless you anymore. No, he still rewards her with the child. She's still going to have the baby this time next year. He still has her name, the child Isaac, which means to laugh. He still redeems her sinful laugh by turning it into a laugh of joy. I could think of nothing else to say when I think about that other than that is our God. That is who he is. And that is why my heart is so fastened to him because this is what he's like. He will take something like this and still bless his people because he wants to, because he's chosen them, and then he'll turn our sin and somehow redeem it and make it into something good. What God is like our God? No God is like our God. None. I mean, how could we not love him and and just fall before him in, in adoration? But anyhow, All that ends the first half of the text. And I think it's important to note what happens here is a type and shadow that will start repeating itself throughout Scripture. What do I mean? Well, she's the first barren woman we come across, but she's not going to be the last. We're going to come across barren women who have their wombs miraculously open so that a child of promise or as a blessing may come. You have Sarah right now. Later, you're going to have Rebecca. You'll have Samson's parents. You'll have Hannah. And then you'll have the Shulamite woman. And the Shulamite Shulamite woman is very interesting because it's similar to this. Elisha the prophet says the exact same words as God. By this time next year, you'll have a child. And just like Sarah, she doubts and she says, don't play with your servant's heart. But then he walks away, right? And then she does get that child by this time next year. But then years after that, that child dies. And yet Elisha raises him from the dead. Now the Hebrew reader that is reading the text after the Shulamite part is is, is, um, written, that Hebrew reader would connect Sarah and the Shulamite story because of the same verbiage in the parallels. This time next year, all that kind of stuff. They would connect them, right? And so this newer repetition of the pattern that keeps repeating now adds resurrection to it. And so Jews would naturally then read resurrection back to Sarah's story as well because they think they're connected. Have you ever wondered why the author of Hebrews says that Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac because he assumed God could just raise him from the dead? And he even says that, that it's as if Abraham got him back from the dead. It's because this is how they read the scriptures. They understood the typology. God starts a pattern. He keeps building on it, and it keeps growing, pointing forward to the the final fulfillment. But each piece also can be added to each other. And so it's very, very interesting. And then when they're all added in their aggregate, they're pointing to the real deal, which is Jesus Christ. Remember, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, promises that this child, that there's going to be this child that's born of the woman, and he will be the Savior. Now, we have all sorts of miraculous births that give us children whose lives all paint a picture about the one to come. But all those children are flawed, but not the one they point to. 
Jesus, the one they point to, has no flaws. So this is what the, the narrative portions of the Old Testament give us. Then the prophets pick up on this, and Isaiah then makes it clear. Let me tell you how this is going to go down. It's going to be a virgin that will be with child, and that child will be God with us. And he will be a son of David, and on, on his shoulders will the government rest. And he'll be called Eternal Father, Mighty God. And Micah will tell us this one will be born in Bethlehem, and his, his origin is from eternity, right? So what the prophets do is they pick up on this theme, but say, look, the real deal is coming, and it blows out of the water, all these other ones. And think about it. With the Shulamite one, we get the taste of resurrection. With the real one, we get the resurrection. Jesus comes out of that tomb, raised from the dead with indestructible life, and when he comes back, the rest of us get raised as well. My point is the types and shadows in the Old Testament always lead to him, and you have to learn how to read the Old Testament this way, otherwise you're going to miss the key points and meanings of these, these texts. This isn't just about God promising to give Sarah a child. Ultimately, it does bring us to Christ, okay? Now, anyway, before I move to the next section... I think that we can all learn something from Abraham here, okay? He waited on God like a servant, like a waiter, okay, as a slave. Now, if you think about it, Abraham, if anybody's going to get cocky, it would be Abraham. He already had a great name in the land, but here when it comes to God, he's humble. He had a posture that recognized his smallness, and so he bowed and lowered himself before God. He took the best that he had in extra abundance and he served it to God. Even if most of it would be thrown away, it doesn't matter. There's no waste when you give to God. None. There's no waste when you give to God. God will repay you beyond anything you give up. Abraham lost his most expensive cow, but he gets a son. And through that son, he gets a nation. And through that nation, he gets a savior. And we get that Savior. Not bad for a cow, okay? So please don't miss that. Don't try to give God the minimum that you could get away with like Cain did, okay? No, like Abel, you need to give him your best. And don't think you could fool God simply by giving what our society says is generous. Abraham's society said a goat would have been enough. He's like, no, I'm not giving God a goat. I'm giving him my most valuable animal, the fattened calf. If you have the cow, you give God the cow. And if your family and your neighbors think you're crazy and fanatic for this, well, you're not doing it for their applause. Or are you? If you're doing it for their applause, then yeah, give the goat. You've already got your, your reward. But if you're doing it because you love God and you want to please God and you want to give him your all, then give him the cow. Give him the cow, right? My point is God is worth everything you have plus an infinity more. Your time, your focus, your effort, your work, all your stuff belongs to him. Don't just give him the leftovers. He gives you himself, and he will one day sup with you, as we see here. As the Beatitudes say, blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. You will see him one day. So if he gives you everything, you give him your everything, right? Give it to him, not just because of reward, but because you love him. And then rather than the applause of men, you'll have his applause when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I think in Abraham, we see all that here. We see what it means to host the Lord. What it means to host the Lord is to give him our all because he is among us, okay? And so the next thing we're gonna then see in the rest of the text is not Abraham as host, but Abraham as intercessor, 
Okay? And again, that all paints the picture of how God blesses the nations through Abraham, through Israel, ultimately through Jesus, and even through the church. Okay? When you're in covenant with God, by necessity, you host God. And when you host God, you are in a unique position to intercede to God on behalf of those who cannot host him, those who are lost, those uh, who are not part of his people. So when God is done being hosted, we read this in verse 16. It says, the men got up from there and looked out over Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to see them off. So from where they're at, they could see the prominent city of man, Sodom. They could see it in the distance. And they're headed in that direction, and, and Abraham is being a good host, and he's going to walk with them a certain distance in order to see them off. When they reach the point where they'll finally depart from Abraham, God stops, and he has a conversation within himself, which is interesting. It's kind of like in Genesis 1 when God talks to himself, let us make man in our own image, right? Did God need to say that out loud? Did he need to let us know what he's thinking amongst the members, persons of the Trinity? No, that's for our benefit. And when he destroys the Tower of Babel, he says to himself, let us go down there and see, right? Did he really say that because he needed to say that or is it for us? It's the same thing. God's going to talk out loud for the sake of Abraham and for the sake of us as we read it. And so look at verses 17 through 19. Moses writes this. It says, then the Lord said, should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? Abraham is to become, great and, become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what's right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. Now, that's pretty big. Okay, God said that this is for Abraham. God said this for Abraham's sake and our own is what I meant to say there. And God, know, God knows what he's going to do. Of course he knows what he's going to do. He knows that he's going to tell Abraham. Shouldn't I tell Abraham? God knows he's going to tell Abraham. He knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. But again, he wants we readers and Abraham to know why he's going to tell Abraham. So he says, should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? What a question. Because God is going to judge the wicked. He is going to bring destruction. Should I hide it? Well, did he hide it from Adam? What would happen if Adam ate the fruit? No. Did he hide from Noah what was going to come with the flood? Nope. Okay. So no, God doesn't hide it. This all points to a principle that God will state clearly through the prophet Amos, if you could put it up there. Amos chapter 3, verse 7. This principle starts here, but Amos sums it up. He says, Indeed, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his counsel to his servants, the prophets. God reveals what he's going to do to his prophets. He reveals what he's going to do to his people as well. So given that God is in covenant with Abraham, they're covenant partners, and he's in covenant with Abraham's offspring after him, God indeed reveals his plans to Abraham and those who come after. This begins to show us how God blesses the nations through Abraham and his seed. Okay, God shares his plans with his people, and his people are to take those words as a warning to the world. And whether the world listens or not, God's people then are to intercede on their behalf. 
We see that begin here with Abraham. In fact, in verse 18, God's going to make it clear that's why he should tell Abraham his plan. He says, Abraham and his descendants will be great and the world will be blessed through them. That's why I need to tell them. The world will be blessed through him. Additionally, God says, I've chosen him and he will, quote, command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Now, some of this piggybacks on what I was saying this morning about righteousness, okay? One reason that God says I'm going to tell Abraham is he's going to teach his kids to be righteous. He's going to teach them to be just. These are two important Hebrew words. Sadaqah, there it is again. I said it this morning. It means righteousness. Abraham's going to teach them to be righteous, to do what's right. And mishpat, to do justice. In other words, to have righteous judgments. Okay? And so doing what's right and making right judgments, Abraham's going to teach that and pass that on to his kids. So of course I should tell Abraham. I should tell my people what I'm going to do because my people live righteously and they seek Right judgments, okay? God's people are to be those who live righteously and make judgments, thus establishing justice in their midst. And the same as that applies for Abraham, that applies for us. Yes, we are justified by faith alone, declared righteous, but then through the Holy Spirit, we start living righteously. And with the word of God, we start doing the righteous things. We, we have Sadaka and Mishpat, okay? Both of these are what we're supposed to be doing as God's people. Okay, and we see that with Abraham. So after saying that, God continues. At this point, okay, he's only let Abraham know that he has a plan to share. Now he's going to let us know it's about Sodom. So look at verses 20 and 21. They say this, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I'll find out. Now, if you have even a little bit of knowledge of the Bible, you, you've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know that they were so wicked that God just decided to destroy them with fire from heaven. Next time, I'll tell you about their wickedness when we get to chapter 19. I think there's no point to do that now, okay? But in chapter 19, we'll talk more about their wickedness. For now, just know that they were very evil people, okay? So God says he's going to go down and see if they're as bad as the cry that's come up to him, okay? Now, this word cry, it is a heartbreaking word in Hebrew. In the book of Jeremiah, this word is used to refer to the screams of terror of those who are being murdered, of those, or, or when an invading army comes in and starts ripping open the stomachs of pregnant women and just killing people. Listen, I, I know we don't think about this a lot because it's horrendous, but if somebody is being savagely murdered, the sounds of it would be an awful cry, an awful, awful cry. And God does not shy away from using those words in Scripture. So whatever was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah was that kind of cry. And it was coming up to him. It was really ugly. Oppression is really ugly. God heard that cry, yet he's patient. He's heard that cry for centuries. And what we know from God is he allows sin to fill up a measure to a point where he says, okay, it's reached its max, and then he brings his judgment. We see that with 
when he brought Israel to destroy the Canaanites. We see that with Sodom here, and we'll see that with the very end, okay? His long suffering eventually does come to an end, and he brings his judgment. And whenever he does, the wicked never see it coming. They mock, they laugh, they marry, they give away in marriage, they drink and be merry, and then boom, the end comes. If you guys could go to the, my Thessalonians slide, 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, it tells us this is what it's going to be like with the final judgment. It says, when they say, meaning the world, peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape, okay? And Jesus said it'll be just like the days of Noah. And so keep all that in mind because this judgment of Sodom that we'll read about next time is a type or shadow of the final judgment to come. And it's important for us to remember that for our own application of this text, but getting back to this idea where God's saying, I'm going to go down and, and check this out. I, I do understand this is anthropomorphic language. God is talking in a way as if he was a man so that we could picture it and understand it. But God doesn't have to go down there. God's all-knowing, right? He already knows how wicked it is. He's saying this for Abraham's benefit. He wants Abraham to know that, look, I don't just blindly hurl judgment and justice on a city. I know everything that's going on. I confirm everything that's going on. In other words, anytime judgment comes, you can trust God that this judgment was the right thing. It might be hard to see sometimes, but God's ways are always right. It was the right thing. So after God has this internal dialogue, verse 22 then says two of the three headed down to Sodom. It says in verse 22, the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And again, these verses here could go both ways as to the debate of is all three Yahweh or not, because if you think about it, uh, Yahweh earlier said, I'm going to go down to the city and see, and then two of them left and go down to the city. So does that mean those two are Yahweh? But then after they leave, it says Abraham remained standing before Yahweh, who didn't go, right? And so which is it? Did Yahweh not go? Did he go? Um, you know, and, and, and here's the thing. I, I leave that to you, but right now, it's pretty simple to me that if all three are Yahweh, then the statement's true that he went and stayed. Because <laughs> there's three of them. Not that hard, okay? Three persons, one God, okay? Now, at this point, Abraham is now going to speak. He's standing before Yahweh, which again, the, 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 the word standing before Yahweh, he's standing before a judge. A judge who's about to issue a judgment. Abraham is standing before him as one who makes intercession. In fact, even the language that he stands before him, and then it says he's going to draw near him. He's going to, he's going to walk up to him. He's going to step forward. That's priestly language. That's what the book of Exodus and Leviticus is going to use about the priests when they're doing their intercessory work. So Abraham's doing something very similar. Look at verses 23 through 25. It says, Abraham stepped forward. And said, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? You cannot possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? Now, at first, that might seem pretty disrespectful. Who is this Abraham to question God like this? Isn't this the guy that lied to Pharaoh out of fear? Isn't this the guy whose wife just lied to God? Is this the guy who agreed to his wife's plan to impregnate her servant? 
And yet, he's going to question whether or not God is just? Well, there are two things to keep in mind. First, God invited him into this role. That's what that whole inner dialogue was about. Should I tell Abraham, right? So God invited a human into this role by making a covenant with him. He said, should I reveal this to Abraham? And then he decided to do so. And what I find fascinating is that God then allows him to ask this question. He doesn't bite his head off. He's the judge. He's got an intercessor. He's listening to the one making intercession. Now, why? Why does God not bite his head off? Well, there's a few reasons. First, God allows his covenant partners to intercede with him on behalf of the guilty. That much is clear. Okay, And so this right here paints the picture of how God saves all of us through intercession, the intercession of Jesus. Is, does not the scripture say he forever lives to make intercession you know, for us before God? I mean, we're so messed up, he has to constantly live to make intercession for us, especially for me. Okay, And so this is what he does. This is painting the picture of that. And then second, Baked into Abraham's questions, he's appealing to God's goodness. If you look at verse 25, it makes it clear. You know, after he asks, would you sweep away the, the righteous with the wicked? Would you sweep 50 righteous people away? He then answers for God. He's like, no, I know you won't. In verse 25, you cannot possibly do such a thing. To kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike? You couldn't possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what's just? This is just like Moses later interceding for Israel when God was ready to destroy them. He does that two times. God, you're the one who said you would deliver them into the land. If you don't, the nations are going to mock you. Don't do this, God. And of course, God's plan was always to listen to the intercession. That, that's, that's what God does. He's modeling that for us so that we understand our salvation, that he listens to Christ on our behalf. Okay, but Moses interceded for Israel. The prophets later intercede for them. Okay, and again, it paints the picture of Jesus interceding for us. Abraham is not even questioning whether or not Sodom's guilty. He knows they are. He knows they're wicked. He's simply asking God to spare it on account of the innocent that might be there. Now, of course, this scratches our... How do I say this? This scratches our ears that have been influenced by Martin Luther. And by the way, I know I talked some trash about him today. Luther, we needed him. He was a great guy. Glad what he did. But Luther has it in our head that righteousness only means perfection. There's nobody innocent. And it's true that the scripture says there's no one good, no, not one. Yet, in the context here, it's clear that Abraham thinks there's people in the city that are innocent. Okay? There's people in the city that are righteous, possibly up to 50 people, and they shouldn't be swept away with the wicked. Okay? And my point with this right, is that when it comes to our salvation, it's true that perfection is what's needed to be saved. right? But we're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about a temporary judgment on earth. And when it comes to avoiding temporary judgments, God does not require perfection. He at times will call people innocent, and we don't have to read our doctrine of justification into that. We can understand that what he means in that sense, God is saying, relatively speaking, some folks in that city are not as bad as others. For example, we know Lot's not perfect. We're going to see how bad Lot kind of is in one way next time, but God considers him innocent of the sins of Sodom. Meaning whatever the cry is coming out from Sodom that's going to make God destroy Sodom, Lot doesn't do that stuff. 
And so God considers him innocent or righteous. The first Peter or second Peter will call him righteous lot. Okay? And so, so my point is, it's, it's not perfection he's going after. Some people, again, they, they try to read justification into this and say, well, what Abraham's really saying is, God, if you've imputed the righteousness of Jesus into 50 people, won't you spare that city? That's not what this is talking about. Okay? Of course, we do know that salvation depends on that imputed righteousness, but that's not what it's talking about here. Okay? Now, the interesting thing is Abraham makes his intercession and God listens. Look at verse 26. It says, The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now, there might be tens of thousands of wicked people there, but I'll spare them on account of the 50. Well, Abraham then says, all right, let me press this a little further as a good intercessor or interceder. Uh, So look at verses 27 and 28. Then Abraham answered, since I ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I am dust and ashes, suppose the 50 righteous lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? He replied, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Okay, so he answers this intercession favorably too. And of course, you could totally see Abraham's humble posture. This is why I'm saying Abraham's not questioning God like some new atheist. How dare you, God? Who is God? No, God will not be questioned by the lost. He will not be questioned by those outside of his covenant. They have no right. He has not given them the privilege, but those within the covenant, he allows them to humbly ask. And Abraham is being humble. He's like, look, I ventured to speak to you. I know I'm dust. I know I'm ashes. But I'm going to ask, how about 45? Okay, again, a humble posture here. And then Abraham continues in verse 29. It says, then he spoke to him again. Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, I will not do it on account of 40. Abraham keeps pressing. Verse 30. Then he said, let my Lord not be angry, and I will speak further. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And in fact, this keeps going. Let me just read the rest of the text till the end. It says, then he said, well, since I ventured to speak to my Lord, suppose 20 are found there. He replied, I will not destroy it on account of 20. Then he said, let my Lord not be angry. And I'll speak one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, I will not destroy it on account of 10. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he departed and Abraham returned to his place. In this entire exchange, Abraham is humble. He's saying things like, please don't be angry. You've let me speak this far. Can I ask one more? Um, He never forgets that in this covenant, God is God and Abraham is just a man, okay? In a sense, if you think about what we've seen here, God's inner dialogue with himself is asking out loud, can I trust Abraham? Can I trust Abraham to be just? And now Abraham in his questions to God is, can I trust God to be just? Will the just Lord of the earth do what's right? And both partners are answering the question, yes. I can trust Abraham. He's not perfect. But as far as my covenant partner, by grace, trusting him. And of course, we could trust God. He's perfect, okay? Even though God is right to destroy that city, because all have sinned, right? All have fallen short of the glory of God. God's saying, I will not destroy it over 10 innocent people. Now, we're going to see in chapter 19 that there's not even 10 innocent people there. But here's the thing. God won't even destroy it over one innocent person. For those who are innocent, God will take them out of there to escape 
the judgment, okay? Abraham really, what the, a lot of what this is about is he's worried about Lot, his nephew. And God's saying, I'll take care of Lot. Okay, if Abraham was worried of the righteous getting wiped out with the wicked, swept away, God's saying, you don't need to worry. I'm not gonna spare Sodom, but I'm gonna get the righteous out of there. I'm gonna get the innocent out of there. I will protect them from my own judgment. Did not God protect the righteous during the flood? Yeah, eight people were on the ark. Does God not protect Lot in chapter 19, as we will see, from the fires of Sodom? Of course he does. When God savaged Egypt with the 10 plagues, did he not protect and spare Israel from those same 10 plagues? And likewise, when God's final great tribulation that's written in the book of Revelation falls upon the world, he will spare his church, okay? We will not be touched by his wrath, but the Bible makes it clear we'll still be persecuted by the world. But hear me very carefully here. God does not remove his people from the earth. He never removes his people from the earth. Noah could hear the water crashing outside that ark. Lot could feel the fire, the heat of the fire on his back as he's running, okay? And Israel could see all those plagues with their eyes and they could hear the wails of the Egyptians who lost their firstborn. It will be the same with the final judgment too, okay? And so with the conversation now done, tells us Yahweh, the Lord, departs from Abraham and Abraham goes home. This will then set the stage for what we will read in chapter 19. But in terms of application for us, I do want us to consider what we just read. Sodom was a very, very wicked city. And Abraham did not have any respect for its wickedness or even its king, if you remember back to chapter 14. Yet Abraham still fought a war to save it, as well as his nephew that was within it. Well, now that it's God that's fighting against Sodom, sorry, Abraham, you can't fight God <laughs> to protect Sodom and his nephew. He's not even going to try. What he does now is he's like, well, let me plead. Let me plead for them. Let me intercede for them. And so let me ask you something. How often do you plead for the lost? Not just pray for the lost, but plead for the lost. How often do you plead for the lost that are the most wretched, wicked people in our society that you know hate your guts? How often do you plead for them? How often do you go to God in prayer asking him to spare our wicked nation? I think we're far too likely to ask God to rain down fire on them, like James and John, the sons of thunder. You might be thinking, but they're our enemies. They persecute everything that's good and pure. Yes. But Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45, Jesus says this. He says unto you, he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the children of your Father in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's what Jesus says. Let me get to the heart of this. Abraham, as God's covenant partner, interceded on behalf of the world. That is one way the nations get blessed. Ultimately, they get blessed through Abraham's descendant, Jesus. They get blessed through his atonement because people from all nations get saved based upon the work of Christ with his death, burial, resurrection, and his intercession, right? But even here, before that happens, they're being blessed, okay? Because you have God's people interceding for them, okay? We, today, as believers in Christ, we are God's covenant partners of the new covenant. So do we bless the nations? Do we bless the world through our intercession? John, how many people showed up to the Acts 1-8 prayer meeting? A couple people, that's good. 
it should be a lot more than a couple people, okay? What that meeting is all about is interceding for the nations, interceding for the world, okay? And so do we intercede for them? And do we carry to them the message of the king? That's what we're supposed to be doing to the lost in our community and the lost to the ends of the earth. And then it's not just enough to do that. Do we do this in a way that shows that we are for them? Okay, that's important. Moses was for Israel. Abraham was for Sodom and Jesus is for us. Sodom didn't deserve Abraham to be for them. Israel didn't deserve Moses to be for them. And we sure as heck don't deserve Jesus to be for us, but he is for us nevertheless. Abraham might not have respected Sodom's wickedness or its political leaders, but his actions still showed he was for Sodom. When it required a sword for him to protect them, he did. And when it required intercession before God, he raised his voice to intercede. And I do pray for us, rather than us being angry culture warriors, that we'll be for our culture. Now, obviously, we stand against its sin. That's one way we could be for them. But we do so in a way that is, is, that is clear that we are ultimately for them. They're not in covenant with God. They can't intercede before him. But we are in covenant with God. And we are to be for them with our prayers. We are to be for them by telling them the gospel again and again. We're to be for them by turning the other cheek sometimes when it's necessary. We're to be for them by laying down our lives if necessary. We're to be for them by giving up some things that are ours if it leads to their betterment. We're to be for them is my point. And I'm telling you something, if you're, if you're evangelizing them or calling them out on their sin as in a tone where it looks like you hate them, they will never believe you're for them. What you're saying is, I'm only for you when you repent. No, Abraham was for Sodom and asking for it to be spared on account of 10 people, even though he knew how wicked they were. Be for your culture. Be for this world. Don't be supportive of their sin, but be for them. Intercede on their behalf. And so it's my prayer that as God's people, we're not just going to look at our text and say, oh, this is cool. Abraham hosted God and interceded for Sodom. Instead, I hope you would say as Abraham's spiritual sons, some physical, but spiritual, as Abraham's sons, we host God as his church because we know the Holy Spirit dwells in the church. We know as individuals, the Holy Spirit dwells in our own bodies. Okay, so we host God, and as such, we have a responsibility to intercede for the world. I think that Abraham would be bewildered if he saw the typical American Christian's attitude towards the world. I think he would be pleased if he saw Richard Wombard, the founder of Voice of the Martyrs, if he saw his attitude. When that man was in a Romanian prison in the 1950s being tortured by communists, they beat him for praying. And he kept praying, and they'd peek through the window and see him praying, and then they'd beat him again. And finally, one of the prison guards pulled him out and says, I keep beating you because you're praying. Why? He says, I'm praying for you. That's what it is to be for them. That's what it is to stand against their wickedness and to be for them. And that's the kind of thing that we see, I think, with Abraham. And that's the kind of thing we ultimately see with Jesus when he's stretched on the cross. And he's like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's praying for them as they're crucifying them. Stephen, as he's being stoned, is praying for them as they're murdering him. Okay? That is what it means to be for them, even though they don't deserve us to be for them. We don't deserve Christ to be for us. We want Christ to be for them like he is for us, and so we need to be praying for them. We need to be preaching to them, okay? That's ultimately 
what this is about. It's what we see with Abraham. It's what we see with the prophets. And ultimately, it's what we see with Jesus Christ. So what is it going to be for us? Let us be those that host God and intercede for the world. And let's not grow tired in doing what's pleasing to God. If there's any unbelievers here, I'm going to intercede for you right now. Any unbeliever listening, and I'm going to plead with you, stop being an unbeliever. Stop being a resident of Sodom that's about to be destroyed. As you say peace and security, the judgment's coming. You've sinned, and God is holy and righteous, and through Jesus Christ, he makes a way of escape. Jesus is the God-man who came and died on the cross for our sins and rose on the third day. If you believe on him with all your heart, you will escape that judgment. He is the ark, like is in terms of the ark that saved Noah. He is, he's, he's our salvation. That's what his name means. So if you trust on him and believe on him, your sins are forgiven. You get the credit of his righteousness, and you will avoid the wrath to come. And then you too will be one who hosts God and can intercede for the lost. So don't stay in your sins. If you have any questions, come talk to me about this. What we're going to do is we're going to have one more song, and then we're going to have the Lord's Supper. And so as um, the Lord's Supper is being passed out, it's for those who weren't here this morning um, and weren't able to partake of it. Um, Please keep your hand up until the usher is able to get it to you, because if you just raise your hand and put it down, they're not going to remember where Well. They might, but just make it easier for them. So we're going to pray, and then uh, Fernando will come up and lead us in one more song. Lord, we just thank you so much for you being our Lord, for you giving us the example that you give us in this text, Lord, of being a host of you, God, but an intercessor for the world. May we learn what we are supposed to from this. May we see how the text ultimately pointed to you, and may we see how it calls us to live in a way pleasing to you. And I pray that we will. And we pray, Lord, if there's any unbelievers that don't know you, that they'll come to you and be saved today as well. We just pray all this to you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.